0: there because it's not politically correct for me to do it in here oh yeah yeah you can't it's okay it's fine bears she's gonna get beat up back there just kidding it's not gonna happen even the millers probably knew not to dress their kids in bears outfits today Uh, sorry okay hey everybody Um, I've been sick for the better part of two weeks, and so this is the new record for the least prepared I've ever been for a sermon. I know—I didn't say that last week, because last week was the last record, um, because I thought that was going to go okay. But just bear with me for—because I think I got the passage, but it's just not going to be slick, okay? All right, let me just tell you something. Man, I love shawarma. Do you know what that is? It's like—it's lamb that goes around in, like, the spigot. that's like in Heroes, and like—we used to have this restaurant in— and we lived in Chicago called the Pita Inn. I know you're not supposed to say Chicago lovingly today. But when we lived there, um, they had the Pita Inn and the Pita Palace. And you could go there, and for like $12, you could get falafel, and you could get this big plate of shawarma. And man, I just I just love lamb. So um, back when I was in college, I was, I was dating this nice Jewish girl who had become a Christian. And I got invited to her parents' house for— um, uh, a Passover Seder. And I was pretty psyched about that because, you know, um, I had read the book of Exodus, and I had read how God commanded Jewish people to celebrate the Passover, right? And so—hold um, on, I'm having trouble with the aiming on this thing again, I think. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going the wrong way. That's the problem. Um, and so, man— Okay, so this is what I'm expecting. Like, if you've read the book of Exodus, essentially what it says is, all right, everybody gets together as families. You kill a whole lamb. You roast the whole thing, right? And um, you make these bitter herbs, and then everybody eats this this Passover, right? And... Um, you're supposed to eat it like you're ready to go. You know, God, God says, you know, have your sandals on your feet, your, your, uh, your robe tucked in your belt like you're about to run or walk or go somewhere, and you eat it like with your staff in your hand. Like, could, because the idea is, is that God's about to fulfill his salvation promise to free you from slavery. So as you're eating it, you're remembering that this is the symbol that is the thing through which God's going to free you from slavery. So get ready to go because you're about to receive freedom, right? Which means— I had been waiting my whole life to find a woman who would say to me, eat a big pile of roasted meat as fast as you like and don't mind about the vegetables. And I, and I realized for the first time as a Christian that what I was looking for in a woman I could only find in God. <laughs> Is that funny at all? Okay. Okay. But when I showed up at the Seder, what I realized was it doesn't go down like that. It just doesn't—there's no roasted—in fact, most Reformed Jews, they don't even eat lamb. They have beef or something, and there's like an egg, and there's this little apple dish that's kind of good, but it's not roasted lamb, you know? Like, it was—we had this great meal, and it had—there were all these different dishes and stuff, but I'm like waiting for like this hundred-pound lamb on a spigot to come in, and there these pile of meat, and and, the—and for the the man of the household to to read the biblical command, eat it fast! You know? And that just didn't happen, and like as an outsider going to that traditional event, I could—and having read the Bible, I could see this huge disparity between what God had commanded and what the tradition had become, and the problem was twofold. One, it didn't resemble the command, and two, it wasn't near as much fun as what was commanded. You know? But here's the reality, right? If somebody—if like an alien came from another planet and came to my house for Christmas, and he read Luke chapters 1 and 2 and anticipated what we would be doing as a family for Christmas— you know, would he ever think that we'd have some tree lit up with all these lights, with little things dangling off of it, with all these presents we'd bought? For, uh, he'd be like, why are you giving each other presents? Why, why do you have a tree? Why is it a tree with lights in the middle? Why, and, or, or he might say, you know, he might say, um, why do you dangle socks stuff with things that are flammable dangerously close to the fireplace? <laughs> right? We had one catch on fire this year. Stinking flume. Um, And, uh, you know, like, that's how—and that's true. And that would be—I mean, think about churches. Like, how much is actually commanded in the Bible for us to do at church that's exactly like what we actually do? I mean, that's why there's so many different churches, right? I mean, you get all these different things, and, and, and those traditions become normal, and they evolve slowly enough that you don't really realize things are changing or how emotionally invested you're getting in them, right? And before you know it, you f- it's so easy to go, well, we can't change that, or you can't mess with that, or this—God said that. And we have no idea that cleanliness is next to godliness isn't in the Bible. You know, it's like 1st Nick chapter 4 verse 3 or something. I mean, I would have never written that one in the Bible, but you know. And um, so when we read Mark 7— You know, it's Jesus fighting with the Jewish leaders. We don't think of ourselves as Pharisees, right? And so it essentially is Jesus telling people not to be religious hypocrites. And the great moral of the story is that little verse that says, and by doing this, Jesus declared all foods clean, which means we can have shrimp cocktail when we watch the football game. And everybody's happy, right? But that's not what the chapter is really about at all. The chapter is right before the revelation of Jesus' true identity. And what what we're finding out is that Jesus— shows up at this event of disciples not putting a little water on their hands up to their second knuckle, and that becoming this huge deal where Jesus turns to the respectable people from the capital and says, you people are a bunch of hypocrites, and then he doubles down on them and says, not only do your traditions stink, he goes and takes something that's actually commanded and treats that like a tradition he's getting rid of. I mean, do you see what he does? He actually says he goes. Not only are all your traditions wrong, but all the cleanliness laws of the whole whole Old Testament are essentially just traditions themselves that you've completely missed the point of. And we're not going to do those anymore. <laughs> so the laws, all their traditions, were built on go. I mean, that's like ha- that's that's so weird. I mean, can you imagine being one of those Pharisees? You'd be like, what? What are you talking about, right? And it all, it's all over their their question was, shouldn't your, shouldn't your disciples be washed in their hands? But you see, to Jesus this is a totally—this is a much bigger issue because the work of Christ and the tendency of religious tradition are opposite spiritual programs. They're totally opposite spiritual programs. And this is where Jesus steps in it and makes really clear how completely opposite is the program of virtually every religious ideology and the gospel. They're totally different. One of the things that we have to remember as Christians is that if you don't know anything about the religions of the world, they do superficially sort of look the same in certain ways the minute you actually learn about any of them, you find out that those similarities are only superficial, that they're radically different, and that the gospel is another level of radically different because it's, what it's doing is, is not to teach people how to be religious. It, it is designed to create new people. And, and here's, here's the problem with tradition The tradition is not inherently bad, okay. The intention of tradition is to increase the clarity, the potency, and the depth of something, right? That's why we do traditions, right? It focuses us in on something. That's why we wear the Packers jerseys. I was in Panera. I was in Panera this week, right? I was interviewing somebody, and on one side of me was a couple where one was wearing a Packers jersey and one was wearing a Bears jersey and behind the guy I was talking to, and my back was against the wall, was two women, one wearing a Bears jersey, one wearing— I told the guy, listen, if one of these couples sits down on this side, we're getting out of here, because you just don't know what's going to happen. But the whole, you know, the whole purpose of, you know, cooking a lot of food and have people over for the game, these are all traditions. Why? They're meant to focus and amplify something we're going to experience. The fundamental nature of a tradition is the same whether you're watching a football game or coming to church or getting married or doing anything. It's to take something and amplify it and press it in and clarify it, right? But here's the issue. The reality of traditions is that because of the kind of thing we are, because we're human beings, the human tendency is to corrupt traditions by creating confusion and conflict in how we multiply them and in how we handle them and in how they evolve in our hands. Because of what the kind of thing we are, we take the idea of a tradition, which is a pretty helpful idea. But because of what we are, traditions tend to go bad in our hands. And this is important partly because, listen, this is, this is like one of the major thrusts of Protestantism. I mean, Protestantism came into being by saying our traditions have gone bad. Tradition isn't bad in and of itself, but over a thousand years, over 1,300 years, our traditions went bad. And all the people who were in charge doubled down on the traditions. They're like, oh no. And Luther and Calvin and these people who were part of the Reformation were like, well then we just gotta, we've gotta pitch the whole store and start all over again with the Bible. I mean, that's what—and so when people—I mean, there was a book out a few years ago, Is Protestantism Done? Or is the Reformation Over? The Reformation can't ever be over. That's the problem. The people who were—we who are the children of the Reformation need Reformations. Because we all—human beings just create new traditions, and when those traditions interact with our sinful human natures, we create religious hypocrisy through them, and we need another Reformation. That's why one of the chants of the Reformation was, Reformed and always— Anybody know? Reforming. That was the chain of the Reformation. Where we're going to reform things, and then we're going to have to do it again next week. Because we're reformed, but we always have to be re-reforming. Why? Because human beings are always looking for somewhere to hide from God, even converted ones. Even converted ones. The fact is, is that human beings— to the extent to which we don't fully believe the gospel, always feel a little uneasy in God's presence. And religious traditions are very helpful in not having to really engage with God directly. Right? And so a very simple evangelical tradition like having a prayer list. having a prayer list. How is that? It's just a very small step to organizing what you're wanting to pray about to— having a recitation associated with each name without really engaging with God because you're doing something else, you're reading a list and reciting prayers related to those names. It's no different than the rosary after a while. Because, and it's not because traditions are bad. It's not because traditions are bad. It's because we're bad. We can corrupt anything. I mean, think about it. Just about everything in the world, 1 Thessalonians says, God created everything in the world for your enjoyment, right? But there's sin everywhere. Why? Because we've corrupted all of these things. We've corrupted food and sex and love and money and traditions and everything. We have a way of overdoing it or underdoing it or twisting it or using it selfishly or not using it at all or we're the problem, right? So there's four things I want to go through quickly in relationship to the religious hypocrisy that, that grows out of tradition. Um, one is religious hypocrisy is a universal human tendency that's destructive to faith. It's a universal human tendency that's destructive to faith. So if we're going to have traditions, we have to know it, we have to be aware of it, and we have to be constantly reforming them because our natural tendency is toward hypocrisy. Um, second, religious hypocrisy conceals itself in our traditions and practices. The best way, The best hiding place— For religious hypocrisy among religious people is in our traditions. Good as they are, that's the best hiding place for our religious hypocrisy. Third, religious hypocrisy demonstrates our internal depravity. You want to know how bad we are? Just look at how we use our traditions and how they become fertile fields that grow this great crop of religious hypocrisy. And fourth, Jesus came to free us from legalism and hypocrisy. We're going to try to actually get to that fourth one, so let's roll. First, um, religious hypocrisy is a universal human tendency um, in a number of ways. One is, you can count on it. Listen, you can count on religious— There's a reason why Mark included this obscure um, quarrel that Jesus had with a bunch of Pharisees, right? Why why did the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to include in, you know, Christian scripture for all of us today, a quarrel Jesus had with Pharisees over washing hands, right? Well, it's because— he, there's something universal in this passage. That's why. It says in verses 7 and 9, he, re, he replied, this is Jesus, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught my men. Now think about this. Was Isaiah talking about these Pharisees when he said that in 700 BC? This is not a trick question. Was Isaiah talking about these Pharisees? Of course not, right? Of course not. In Isaiah, even in Isaiah, he gives this message a number of times, and he's talking about different people even in Israel. Chap- in, in Isaiah chapter 1 starts out with G- God saying, Oh, I hate your worship services. Oh, they're awful. They're awful. But they're doing, all, they're doing all the stuff. They're bringing sacrifices. They're singing songs. They're raising their hands in prayer. They're, praying. they're doing all this stuff. And God's like, Oh, gosh drive me crazy. In fact, they infuriate me. They make me mad. Like, you think that you're pleasing me, and it's, it has, it's having the opposite effect. Just, just quit it for a while, and go and obey, and then we'll have a great time at the worship services, right? And um, so that's the whole plan. So if Isaiah said it, and then Jesus says, well, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you guys. Now, does that mean Jesus believes literally Isaiah was prophesizing about the specific Pharisees? Or was he basically saying, man, there is always you guys. There's always you guys. There's always you guys that think, if I just help God by amplifying his commandments and ma- getting, making them more specific. So taking God's general commands and, and, and just specifying, right? Because people are silly and they need help. And so we'll just make a lot of rules and that will help people. And Jesus is like, oh, guys, come on. There's always guys like you who think that you're doing me a favor, but you're becoming a hypocrite and you're creating a weight to put on people that they can't bear, which he says in Matthew 23 about the same kind of dynamic. The other other part is that it's it's really predictable and it's repetitive. For example, in two places in Mark 7, Mark is specific to say, and they did this a lot. Right? So in verse— in Mark 7 it says, and they observe many other traditions, like, and I, lo- I love the enemy's translation, like how they wash their kettles. <laughs> I mean, really? How you wash your kettles? God is gonna put a command? I mean, really? And part of the issue that Jesus is having here is none of this has any relationship to the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. There are no commands in the Old Testament about this kind of washing at all. There's none. This is completely made up. Because what happened is, the priests, the priest class, in order to go in to do actions before God in the temple, were called to wash in a certain way. Right? But what's, the, what's a good religious logic in that? Well, if the priest should wash, shouldn't we all wash? Right? And if we all wash, shouldn't we all wash everything? And if you don't want to be selfish, if you want to have real religious devotions, then why wouldn't you wash everything right down to pots and kettles and dip containers? Right? And what Jesus is saying is, and then in, in verse 13, Mark also writes, and, and, and puts this in the mouth of Jesus, and you do many things like that. So when he gets to the korban passage, right, he's like, so you create this law— that has nothing to do with what I actually said, and that ends up getting used to fight against another thing I actually did say. That's, and, then, and then what does he say? He doesn't say, that's just one example. Um, and, you, you know, there's a couple places you need to clump. No, he's like, you do tons of stuff like that. You've got tons of rules that you have sort of created through some kind of logic from something I said— which wasn't in my intention, and the result of that command is that it, it tells people not to do something I actually told them to do. Which in this case is, help your parents. Uh, because in Jesus' mind, a, a real religious logic is, if you're going to honor your father and mother, not letting them starve would be a good start. Like, he doesn't think that's rocket science. That's not religious hypocrisy to go, okay, honor my father and mother. Should I let her starve to death if she's a widow? Probably not, right? I mean, that—Jesus is like, if you you see and and see, here's what Jesus is ultimately saying. If you take honor your father and mother and combine it with just one thing, faith. Faith. You're going to know you shouldn't let your mother starve. Right? But meanwhile, they're like, okay, so a gift devoted to God that's set aside like a lamb or something, that's called a korban, right? And so— what that means is that anything could be set aside for God. Anything you might give to God would be a korban. And, you know, you would decide it back in your field. You'd be like, oh, I'm going to kill that lamb. Right? But it might be three months before you get to the temple. So technically speaking, you could determine something would be given to God as a worship sacrifice before it's actually happening. You decide right when they're coming down with a knife. So every korban sacrifice technically— is one long before—and, of course, in God's providence, he sees it before it even existed. It's going to be one. So in theory, all of your goods that you'll ever give to the temple or in religious devotion are all korban, and they shouldn't be given away even to your mother because, of course, God is more important than family. So if you decide that all of your money that you might give to your mom is going to be at some point given to the temple, then— You really can't give it to your mom. Let one of your other siblings help. Right? Is that reasonable? It's totally reasonable. That's, that's logic. Right? That's exactly why Martin Luther said logic was a whore. Because good logic combined with a wicked heart, working towards self-serving purposes, will always produce a bad conclusion with fantastic logic. Because logic can do all kinds of things. I mean, it's like a Cirque du Soleil member. Right? That's, and that's exactly why, if that logic is what we're using to create the traditions, we've got a problem. Jesus wants to transform the heart. If you transform the heart, what Jesus says, in the, what, we, what Paul ends up saying is, if you transform the heart, you don't even need a law, much less a tradition. You don't need anything. If you have a transformed heart that's living by the Spirit— You no longer need the supervision of the law, right? We're getting a lot of order. And it's personally destructive. And here's why it's personally destructive. Traditions are extremely useful in our personal destruction in this sense. We can get hardened by believing in the tradition. And so our hypocrisy is only semi-conscious of it all. Right? So— for example, I can go to a church and I can live in a Christian community where, relatively speaking, we're not generous, right? But I can go to a church that among an ungenerous people is pretty generous. And so I can get involved in that tradition of kind of what's normally expected in the community, and I can go, I'm a pretty generous guy. And I'm not really being an open hypocrite, am I? I mean, I'm kind of connecting with the people around me. I'm I'm, I'm sort of generally working with the wisdom of what I've got, and I really ought to know better, but I'm not going to think it through that much. Right? Or I might, for example, in the, in the Bible, you read about worship, and it talks about this thing. Okay. Now don't be offended when I say this. Can, every, can we agree that when I say this, you won't be offended if it really is in the Bible? Okay. Thank you. So we got one. Um, okay. In the Bible, when it talks about worship, sometimes it mentions— Right? It it says—it talks about dancing, you know. It's like, they dance, and you should—and God—people dance. And, you know, and we're all just kind of like, I ain't dancing. (laughs) Right? And you get to the very last psalm in the Bible, and it's one of those repetitive songs that we don't like. And it's like, you know, praise the Lord this, praise the Lord that. And then it says, praise the Lord with dancing. And we're just kind of like, where is that black marker? You know? I mean, because it would never occur to us—I mean, why would it—why does it occur to us to dance? Right? Or why wouldn't it occur to us to like, I don't know, sing loud? Or to move our body at all? Right? And we're like, well, we're, you know, Norwegians or something. You know, we don't do that. You know, and I'm just confused because I have like a british German side and an Italian side. I just don't even know what to do. You know, I've got one Italian arm and one British arm, you know. So I was joking with Andy because he, he's like, I got these skin spots. I was like, well, you know, Vikings were never supposed to live this far south. <laughs> the sun will just kill you. <laughs> and See, the, it, the, it, I can't even remember what the point is. What's the, where am I? Dancing. Right, dancing, right? But it would never occur to us. Like, you know, Matt gets up there, he starts playing, you know, and Shirley's just like, woo, Jesus! And we'd be like, Somebody calls something. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's right there in the Bible. Plainly in a number of places. In fact, there's a place where, remember, David dances? Now, he does dance in his underwear, but he's dancing, and one of his wives goes, ah. Oh. And it's, you know what it says? That God's judgment comes on her, and she never has any sons, ne- never has any children to be David's heirs, because she despised his dancing at a moment when he should have been happy, right? And if we come and worship God and God is great, then what should we all be at that moment? Really happy. But what never occurs to us? To express it! (laughs) Particularly in dancing, or by singing loud, or moving our mouth more than a quarter of an inch when we sing, or anything like that, right? And I'm—listen, I'm not saying we're any worse than the people who do that, right? Because you could go to another church, and they're like all repetitive and expressive, and you'd be like, did it ever occur to these people to think linearly about things and to work through concepts from the beginning to the end so you can really digest and understand a theological topic? (laughs) Which is totally valid. That's a totally valid critique, right? And they would go, ah, we're not going to become stodgy and religious like you, right? And they're totally religious. It's totally a tradition, and it never occurs to us that God may have given people's intellect and emotions both intentionally. Not so that one culture could invest in intellect and the other culture could invest in expressive emotion, and then they could dislike each other intensely. You know what I mean? And what would happen if those people were in the same church? Ooh, you know? It's crazy. But, you know, know, I switch to worship leader up here, and we get all these emails like, oh, I don't like that guy. I don't like that girl. Well, listen, you're not going to like everybody. You know? If you want to know how good you've got it, I'll just lead worship next Sunday. (laughs) And you'll love everybody after that. You know? I mean, here's the thing. Listen, because if we— Get our little, our little art tradition, our little music tradition— I was going to preach on this, but I'm sort of doing it now. Um, we get our little art tradition going. I've been ill. I probably, I'm st- probably still feverish. So just, you know, give me a little grace here. Um, you know, if we get our little music tradition, and it's kind of what—this is what we do. Oh, this is what we do. Mm-hmm, look at that. Um, here's the problem. The more, the more narrow we get to please the audience that likes it, the more narrow of a congregation we get in terms of tastes, right? And so we become a less and less and less diverse church. So here's the thing. If you are going to a church where you like every song, there's a problem. There's a problem. You shouldn't like every song. Because if you like every song, you're going to end up going to a church with people just like you, which is a problem because there are problems with you that the other people just like you don't see. And if you go to a church with a pastor that likes that kind of music— with all people just like him, then guess who's gonna preach poorly to you? That guy. You know the whole idea of, oh, let's get a 30-something, 20-something church with all 30 and 20-somethings and play rock and music with a 30, 20 something pastor. No, that just needs to go out and get themselves an eighty-year-old is what they need to do. Who talks condescendingly at them like a parent. That would be the best thing for them spiritually. <laughs> right? Because he could actually see it. He can be like, You guys don't think you're trendy. You're so trendy. Or you don't think you're conformist. Like, y'all have the same tattoo. Come on. You know? And it's just—and then, like, a church that's, like, all, you know, gray heads, you know, they need, like, that younger guy to be like, are you guys already dead? Are you, i mean, I, I don't really get it. Why are we here? What are we doing? Do you go home between services? I don't even know. Like, you—ma'am, you didn't move an inch in a week. You know, it's like—it's good for us, Right? But if we get—see, but this is a problem. You get personally invested in your traditions. You can't hear any of that stuff. It's just—it's all meddling. It's unkind. And, oh, that pastor's trying to hurt my feelings. That's my job! (laughs) Right? So, I mean, so if we want to be a church in the image of Christ's bride, what do we have to be? Upsetting to you. That's what we have to be. By definition, you have to come to worship— and you have to not like at least a third of the songs. If you like, if you like all the songs, we got a problem. Now listen, that's not the same thing as having like a decibel rate of like 527, okay? Those, I mean, there are like capacities of, I mean, okay, so not all complaints are just, and I'm not saying don't complain. Complain all you want, okay? Um, just not at the sensitive people. Um, and make sure it's constructive and not whiny. Okay, so— um, We're running out of time here. So, um, yeah. So here's the thing. Since we're not going to get to the rest of this sermon— let me just—I mean, I need to announce something. So I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to now because we're not getting anywhere, and I've talked about worship for 10 minutes now. Um, one of the, here's, here's one of the things that happens. When a church declines, you get weird staffing, okay? That's what happens, because some people stay, some people leave. And, so, and like when you grow, you go, you're all strategic. Oh, let's do this now. Oh, let's do this now. But when you shrink, it's totally different, right? So we, when, I, when I got here, right, we're a church of 330 people or something like that, and we've got a full-time music director and a part-time youth pastor, right? That's totally wrong. It's totally wrong, but that's just what happened. John stayed, right? In the worst time possible, right? John and Kathleen stayed. That's great. I mean, that got us through. Like, I don't care what you think about either of them. They were here when all the rats were swimming away. I mean, not that rat. Not, I'm not saying people left for rats, but I'm just saying the the metaphor is okay. Laugh all you want. Ha ha ha. What I'm just saying is, you know, when the ship is going down, everybody's getting off, right? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but that's when Kathleen became our children's director. She had a perfectly good job doing something she was fantastic at. And then we're like, we need a children's director. Who would want to come to our church? Nobody. And she's like, I'll do it. Right? And then John, you know, he's working with one senior pastor, and he leaves. He's gone now, you know. And so he's like, okay. So now there's an interim senior pastor. He's like, okay, I'll help this guy. And then there's a big fallout with him, and he's just kind of like, I don't know if I should come to work in the morning, right? And he did. <laughs> I mean, and he's a competent man. He could get a different job. But he came, right? So you got a church of 320 people, but you got people who stayed. What do you do? Well, here's the you. Do. You take John, you diversify his job description. That's what you do. And so he's extroverted, and he cares about people's discipleships, and so guess what? He's going to be the small groups guy, in addition to overseeing music. Because, listen, we can't have a full-time music guy and nobody working in discipleship in small groups. That's insane. Right? But we're going to keep somebody who's been faithful, as long as they want to be faithful, and they're doing a good job. So— we're, we're splitting up John's job description about 50-50, probably a little 60-40 to small groups, for him to start working in small groups and to get that stuff rolling again and to do some training with small group leaders so they feel like they've got some direction from the church and all that kind of thing. What that means is there's going to be some more diversity of worship, right? We've got some super talented people who sing like once every month standing over here mixed, and you can't hear them, Right? But these are people who, like, did degrees in music, and they have more musical ability in their little finger than, you know, in my whole genetic line. And so what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to invest in growing and empowering and helping these people become worship leaders, not just so that we can have three or four different bands that will lead us, but so that in five years, if by God's grace we do our job and lead people of faith, and we decide instead of becoming a megachurch, we want to be a church planting church— we have worship leaders to send and to move and to do things with. You know what I mean? Like, we have, we have evangelistic goals. God, God has given us a purpose. He, he, did not, he did not say, now make sure nobody complains about worship at your church. Just make sure everybody thinks everything's fantastic, which of course is impossible, unless everybody's exactly the same. He's told us to build the bride with him. And what that re- requires in our specific situation is— Offering some grace to those who lead us in worship, singing with them, and, and allowing them to find their voice, right? Like, I don't know if you know this about preaching, but preaching is about, ha- about a third skill, about a third training, and about a third just reps, just at bats. Most people, no matter how good they are, stink at least the first 20 sermons they preach. Usually it's more like 50 or 100. So guess what has to happen in the church for there to be good preachers? People have to endure some crappy preaching. That's what needs to happen. And listen, you're, some, pe- some really nice people in Florida and in Lake Forest, Illinois, endured a whole pile of crappy preaching so that you could get 33-year-old Nick, who's not that bad. And I'm serious. Like, you should, you, you should call in Haven and get some of the early messages. It wasn't pretty. Okay, Dr. Sharp, the preaching professor who's preaching a pre- doing a preaching class right now, I went in and introduced him because he was my preaching mentor. And he said right in front of me, in front of the whole class, he's like, Nick, yeah, I remember teaching Nick. He's a great example of somebody who was just God-awful when he started. I mean, <laughs> I mean, terrible. He was, in fact, I, I often think of Nick as one of my poster children for improvement. Because— <laughs> gosh, he was just terrible when he started. I mean, it was just, I mean he, he was, of course, kinder than that. But that's just, that's reality. Listen, we're going to have to allow people to preach to us and have the attitude of a pupil instead of a critic and say, what can I learn from that guy? While he learns, because he's delivering God's word to us, what can I learn from, you know, like Matt grew a Great example. How many times has he led worship? Like four times here? Five times? Like, Think about it. It took me 150 sermons probably before I even found my voice as a preacher. I mean, like 150 times, right? You know, we bring somebody like Sarah Jordan up here or Mario or anybody, right? We got to give them time to find their voice, particularly when they're that good finding it. I mean, if I could have preached as good as Matt plays worship while I was finding my preaching voice, good heavens, that would have been fantastic, right? Right? And so we have to be the kind of church that is not so into our idiosyncrasies or our little tastes or whatever that we, and that we learn the Bible well enough and we recognize our proneness to religious hypocrisy and we're interested in the growth of the kingdom at large. Like that, that is number one, glorifying Jesus and the growth of the bride among people who don't know him and the deepening of his work in the people who do. If, if those are the center— of a converted life, we will endure a lot of things because we know those things we endure are the future. They're the, they're the, they're the future, right? And, and think about what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus' whole point was to say, all these traditions you created totally missed the point, right? What is the point of the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament? The point of cleanliness laws of the Old Testament was that everybody was the same before God and that everybody had to receive God's cleansing in order to come to Him, Right? What did the religious traditions create? They created a distinction between people who did the right washings and the people who didn't. It's totally the opposite. They created a system of self-justification and self-righteousness with the very commands God gave to tell them they could never be self-justified and should never be self-righteous, but needed God to save them. So that Jesus could come along later and say, all this time, You are only ever supposed to be under the law's supervision until grace could be known. And so God could say all the way back with Jeremiah, remember what he said? A time is coming when we won't have to worry about a law written on something because I'm going to write the law on their hearts. Because they'll be converted people and they're going to live by the Spirit. And the law will just be food for thought to help them realize how they can love God and love their neighbor and make disciples of all nations. And that's one of the reasons why a few weeks ago I stood up here and I said that we need to focus for a year on the gospel. Only Jesus and only the gospel can save us from falling into the religious hypocrisy that human nature will always create from our traditions and human beings will always have traditions. And so only through faith and by being reformed but knowing we have to be always reforming can we even hope to escape from wearing the label of these Pharisees even better than they did. And to be the sort of people who don't just eat shrimp at a Packers and Bears game in gladness that those laws no longer apply, but who realize that it is through Christ and Him alone that we have been made clean. And through Him and Him alone we can have a semblance of humility that might save us from the universal human trap of tradition-based religious hypocrisy. Father, we lift up um, ourselves to you right now, and we pray, Father, that you would show us to what depth and in what ways we are already waist-deep in religious hypocrisy. Father, forgive us for all the things that we don't see, that we could see but don't want to see, and even for the places where we are willfully, religiously hypocritical. Father, help us to repent of those things, to turn from them, and to come to you in faith and through your Spirit to be motivated to follow you as you have have called us to and want us to and are loving us to. Help us to be filled with the motivation of your great love rather than the weight of a group of laws that we can never live up to. We pray that you'd teach us the gospel through your son, Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Why don't you stand and see the benediction? As we do our parting tradition at the end of a sermon on hypocrisy traditions, so receive this vitally. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming and go in peace.